Good afternoon. It's Friday the 25th of February 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson, joining me in the studio. As usual for Friday, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the program, Patrick. It's great to be with you, Mike. And uh, well, where are we going to start? Where else could we start? It's going to be Ukraine. Well, a lot's happened since your last broadcast on Wednesday. Wednesday yeah. It's a very fast moving story. Uh, things are fluid. They're literally changing. I mean, just when we put our presentation together for this program, a number of things have actually developed in the last 15 minutes, yes. which we were not able to include into the program. So apologies to our viewers if it's not 100% live and up to date, but we'll do our best to give you a broader uh, picture as possible as to what's going on and why this is important, how we got to this point and why there is a war happening right now. So just to start off with, uh, uh, a lot has happened. Obviously, uh, Russia has uh, uh, initiated military operations. There's a war in Ukraine. Uh, and in the last 24 hours, Mike, uh, it's been absolutely incredible, you know, from a military point of view, uh, nobody's ever seen anything like this and happening so rapidly right. uh, and so decisively. So it is pretty incredible. This is just a map here of uh, some of the flashpoints here around the country. As you can see, uh, Russia's uh, military operations are not limited to any particular region, although there is a big focus in the Donbass, which is there in the lower right-hand corner. You see the two gold areas there, Donetsk and Lugansk, People's Republics, the newly uh, declared self-proclaimed uh, independent republics. But recognized by Putin and Russia and uh, obviously Kiev on there because uh, Russia has in fact moved in there today, this morning. That's correct, yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll show you some footage as well uh, and we'll show you some details. But first let's get back to uh, uh, here. This is the important part. There's President Vladimir Putin uh, and these were the stated objectives of this military operation and they are as follows. Uh, here, guarantee the security for the people of the Donbass region. This is absolutely crucial, Mike, because that is what the Minsk Accords were meant to do. Minsk 1 and 2 were meant to guarantee the security of the people in the Donbass region, Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics, because Minsk failed and was never implemented, and the Ukrainian army kept shelling civilians there for the last seven years. Um, this is one of the big reasons why. And they were also shelling power stations. The water supply was cut off. So for the people in that region, uh, Russia believed that they had no choice but to intervene to provide security and to restore uh, power, uh, water, and food supplies, because there was also a blockade as well. Uh, but one of the key things people have got to recognize is that, as you said, the Minsk agreement's not uh, implemented, but the West always said Minsk agreements, Minsk agreements, Minsk agreements, as if they were implemented, we've got to adhere to the Minsk agreements. Well, they didn't always say that. They only started saying that in the last uh, 72 hours. Right. Before that, only France and Germany were really uh, giving any uh, mention to the Minsk agreements because right. they were part of the Normandy format. Uh, the UK was not involved directly in that. The US was involved, but everybody voted unanimously at the United Nations Resolution 2022. There was a unanimous UN agreement that the minxed peace process was going to be the path towards ceasefire, towards peace in that country. And it was actively undermined at every turn by the United States and the government that it installed in Kiev 
from 2014 to the present. Right. So that's a very important point. You will not see that on any mainstream Western media. It's completely uh, no context on this will ever be provided. Sure. Because it's it's obviously awkward. Right. Uh, the truth is very awkward in this case. But back to Russia's objectives here. We'll put that back on screen to demilitarize the Ukraine. Now, what is he talking about here, Mike? He's talking about the uh, all the weapons that have poured into the country from NATO member states, okay, including some of the Baltic states, which sent anti-tank uh, missiles in there directly, and they something they might regret uh, possibly in the Later future. On, yes. So, but uh, all of the NATO weapons that were paid for by our public money, the billions of uh, dollars and pounds that were spent by our governments, we'll show you what happened to those weapons in a minute. We have some footage. Right. It'll be very interesting. But so Russia wanted to demilitarize the situation. They basically viewed Ukraine as a de facto um, unofficial member of NATO because they've been arming them. Uh, special forces have been training them from the U.S., from the U.K., from other uh, NATO member states. So, and also forward staging bases and operations in Ukraine. So obviously Russia viewed that as a threat, not to mention the talk of NATO membership yeah. uh, and, and goading uh, Kiev into NATO membership. This is obviously a red line. Russia put those uh, concerns in a document to the U.S. State Department, to other, the other NATO member states, basically saying we need uh, some security guarantees in terms of where we stand on international agreements, treaties, and so forth. They, they were rebuffed uh, yeah. by, by the West. So uh, putting all of these things together, it shouldn't come to any surprise to a lot of people uh, to see what happened in the last 24 hours. But uh, back to those objectives here. And here's the real one that has really got the backup of the West, the denazification of Ukraine. And everyone's saying, what, what Nazis, what Nazis? There's no Nazis in Ukraine. Uh, the president himself is Jewish. How could he possibly be Nazi? They're not talking about President Zelensky. They're talking about all the paramilitary neo-Nazi groups that have been backed and armed and trained by our Western military and intelligence agencies. Okay, this is well documented. Yes. These are the Azov Battalion, and a number of these right sector affiliated. So they're ultra nationalists. They follow Stefan Bandera, who fought with Hitler during the Second World War. So you and can, they openly wear the badges. They do have the insignias, the Nazi symbols, and, and things like this. So obviously, this is a concern for Russia. And because Russia made this uh, the complaint to NATO and to the international leaders in the West, they said that the Kiev does not have control over these. Uh, various paramilitary units who are on the front line in the Donbass shelling civilians. Mm. So uh, for the last few years, Zelensky and the Poroshenko and Ukraine say, we're not shelling civilians. The Ukrainian military is not shelling civilians, but these independent uh, nationalist paramilitaries are and have been. So they've used them to deny uh, as, as a kind of form of denial to be able to get things done without doing it through the official military hierarchy. And where are they getting their weapons from? Uh, from the United States. Uh, the United Kingdom. And from the United Kingdom. Yes. So the, we, we are effectively arming and training Nazis in Ukraine, and we've been doing it for a number of years. And all our politicians are saying, we don't know anything about this. Mm. So all you have to do is a few Google searches, and you can see all the documentation of this. You can see the photos. You can see them marching in the streets with the insignias. You can read their, their quotes. The Sun runs these articles 
glorifying yes, some of these. Daily Mail as well. They glorify these neo-Nazi ultra-nationalist snipers, for instance, because they shot Russians and things like that. So it's in our press. I mean, so it's a bit disingenuous for our politicians to stand talking to the country and to the world, acting like they don't know anything about this. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of beyond ridiculous. So anyway, back to the objectives here, and this is also the important part that you need to pay attention to, bring human rights violators and criminals and neo-Nazis to justice. So Russia is vowing to hold a tribunal to bring these people to justice. And we'll show you, they're probably not going to be apprehending them themselves. Uh, we don't think so. We think that that might actually be uh, a point of negotiations uh, for a possible ceasefire settlement. That remains to be seen. So look, looking at a strategic point of view, look at this, uh, that's almost um, guaranteed right there. That's been accomplished. So check demilitarization of Ukraine. Their, their military, as we'll show you, has been pretty much, capabilities have been hobbled. They don't have control of their own airspace. Russia now has pretty much operational control of Ukrainian airspace. So the bottom two, those have yet to be realized. Mm -hmm. But in terms of these objectives, Russia has already achieved two out of those main four objectives. So just so people know, this is a map of the Ukraine. There's Lugansk, uh, Lugansk and Donetsk there in the eastern part. And so this is uh, known as the Donbass uh, region. And what's important, look at those two gold sections, Mike. That's where the old uh, line of demarcation was there on that sort of western line of those gold, where the gold parts inside of Donetsk and Lugansk. So the Ukrainian military had pushed into those territories yes. from 2014. There was a blitzkrieg. We'll show you a timeline in a minute. So right now, Russia is basically working with the uh, People's Republic of Donetsk and Lugansk uh, militaries to push back to the actual provincial line you can see there in white. So that's a main objective. So to secure those two as independent autonomous regions. And so that basically pushing Azov battalions and Ukrainian military out. Yeah. So, and this is done with uh, air support. They're firing cruise missiles and we'll show you just, again some footage. So th this is really crucial. So we're going to show you uh, a, a battle scenario here, thanks to the Caspian report uh, on YouTube, fantastic uh, strategic channel. So this is basically a breakdown. So we're going to explain to you. So if, if negotiations fail, this is a quad axis operation. Russia will come in from four different points. And this is, part of this is already being executed, Mike. And what's really important, keep your eye down lower here on the Black Sea coast and the Sea of Azov there on the right-hand side. Russia already has military bases in Crimea. So if they, and they've already, there are skirmishes in Odessa, that's a Russian speaking, mainly a Russian enclave, okay? So if they, are, if they manage to uh, secure Odessa or to push Ukrainian military out of Odessa, there's Sevastopol, that's where the Black Sea fleet is based. So what you see here is the potentially uh, formation of a land bridge there we go, that's Moldova, there on the right-hand side, Transnistria. That's a, that's a part of Moldova, kind of an independent uh, region there. So in terms of Ukraine and Russia, look at look what's developing here. Now, if they push further, they've already secured the Crimean North Canal. They've restored water to Crimea. Ukraine cut that off in 2014. Now Crimea has water as of this morning. So, and then if they move out from the Donbass and the Dnepr River, and these two key cities here, uh, the Dnepr River basically cuts the country in half. 
So potentially you can see this, how this is going to develop. You see the red areas forming? Russia could cut off Kiev from the Black Sea and isolate it and make it landlocked. Okay, that, that, that could be what happens if negotiations fail. We're jumping ahead here. Uh, so it goes a little bit more. There's, there's another key point here. So if, if this happens and then they push further, Mike, which is to the Dietmir River, they're already in Kharkov, okay? And they're moving the, uh, forces also around Kiev, as you mentioned, okay? So effectively, Ukraine could find itself without control of over half of this country within a week, okay? This is, this is already, half of this has already been realized in terms of strategically in the last uh, 24 hours. So this could, this could definitely happen within a week. What does that mean for Kiev? What does that mean for NATO? It means they really don't have uh, a leg to stand on in terms of negotiation. So, but you talked about, we'll talk about Chernobyl in a minute. We'll just go back here. And that's a really important point too. So Chernobyl is right there on the banks of the Dnieper, just north of Kiev. So Russian forces would need to go around uh, Chernobyl. Uh, it would be more convenient to go through it. Currently, Chernobyl is being held by both Ukrainian and Russian forces jointly. They have a, a sort of a, an agreement to jointly hold this right now. Well, that's very strange because the British media seems to be very, well, yesterday was very key, keen to tell us that Russians have uh, uh, taken Chernobyl, a uh, massive strategic, uh, uh, I mean, they were, I suppose, trying to, so, to encourage the look idea. How, look how close it is to Kiev. So the, if, if Russia brings forces from three sides, uh, then basically Kiev is surrounded. Yeah. At that point, that's when the, the real negotiations take place. That's when you see a ceasefire. Uh, this is when you see things like hand over the neo-Nazis, please. They tell Zelensky. Otherwise, you know, things are going to go from bad to worse. Right. So the Ukrainian military has basically been completely hobbled in this situation. So this is just a, a, a review here of what could happen. And all of what you're seeing there, Mike, could happen within a week. Okay, this yes. is how fast things are developing. So this is a total defeat for NATO because, and for us, obviously, having spent billions of dollars arming and bigging up uh, uh, the Ukrainian military with anti-tanks. But we'll, we'll show you uh, what happened to some of those weapons here. Uh, we've got some footage. We'll cut to that. And uh, it's just here. So this is uh... right in the middle of the fighting. Matthew, right, tell us what you're witnessing there. Stop, so stop. We may, we may get... Right, sorry. So if you just go to uh, put the slide up on screen here. Yeah, and then uh, so this is an arms depot that was hit uh, by a Russian strike. So, uh, and this is in Ukraine. There's your weapons, okay? Those are all your weapons that we've just paid for. Oh, so they've been destroyed? Yes, and, and this is one of many warehouses that have been blown up by the Russians, hit by cruise missiles. Money well spent then. Good investment for the people of the US and Britain. What do you think? Excellent. It's a good way to spend the money. You could probably build a few schools uh, with the money that was gone, it's gone up in smoke there. And uh, the same here, and this is, where is this? This is uh, Gostomel here, and the same sort of thing. Those are Russian helicopters, by the way, over, uh -huh. overhead, uh, flying in. Uh, so, and similar scenes in Kiev. Yesterday at lunch, Russian helicopters flying at normal speed uh -huh. over the capital. Uh, so, now that's interesting. So, w w we hear all this talk about the bloodthirsty Russians, 
so we have a clip here, uh, which we'll show you from CNN. Uh, and it's very interesting. Listen closely to this uh, Matthew Chance, British, British uh, correspondent for, for CNN. Go ahead and roll this. Right in the middle of the fighting. Matthew, right, tell us what you're witnessing there. Stop, stop. We may, we may get, we Jim, may get we've come out of the center of the uh, Ukrainian capital, Kiev. And we are here at the Antonov Airport, which is about 25 kilometers, 15 miles or so out of the center. These troops you can see over here. Stand up, Lewis. These troops you can see over here, they are Russian airborne forces. They have taken this airport. They've allowed us to come in and be with them as they defend the perimeter of this air base here, where uh, helicopter-borne troops, these troops, uh, were landed in the early hours of this morning to take and to form an air bridge to allow for more troops to come in. You can see these are Russian forces. You can tell they're Russian. I've spoken to them already. You can tell they're Russian. They've got that orange and black band to identify them as Russian forces. I've spoken to the commander on the ground there within the past few minutes, and he said they are now in control of this airport. And within the past few seconds, just before you came to us, they were engaged in a firefight, presumably with the Ukrainian military, which says it is staging a counteroffensive to try and take back this 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 airport. We can tell you now, I'm standing outside the. So the bloodthirsty Russians invited CNN to take to take uh, close up footage. CNN, who's basically the sworn enemy of Putin and Russia for the last uh, seven or eight years. Yes. So you know that says a lot about uh, uh, the the state of this of the situation there. So and just a little bit of an update here: Russia has just uh, captured. The Black Sea Island outpost. Now, that headline's very interesting there, Patrick. I know you're going to talk about this in a second, but the, the British media coverage of this was that these 13 soldiers on that island uh, shouted at the, the uh, Russian military, uh, go F yourselves, and then died uh, as a result. But that's not quite what this article says. No, it doesn't. Look at the subhead, Mike. It's very interesting. Ukrainian soldiers pronounced uh, by their president as killed while defending an island were actually taken prisoner, uh, according to Russian reports. So who knows what the truth is with this, Mike? What do you think? Do you uh, trust the Western media? No, because that, that headline uh, that's doing the rounds right across, and it's become a hashtag on Twitter and so on, reminded me very much of the types of headlines that we saw in Syria, for example, which proved at the end of the day to be false. So I'm going to uh, keep uh, the British media's coverage of this incident with a very large pinch of salt uh, until there's some verification. We didn't have time to get it together, but if you looked at the newsstands this morning, you, ha you have an image of a, uh, an older woman with a bandage and a bloody eye on every single British newspaper. Right. The same person. It's like straight out of central casting. No, it may be a genuine person. She may be injured. It may be a tragedy, but they're using the exact same single image to sell a war narrative across maybe five or six different major daily newspapers in Britain. So it's like, where is the plurality of, uh, is, of reporting? Yes. And for, it's not there. So this is totally a uh, rapid response mechanism, streamlined narratives. Yes. So they all got their sort of uh, instructions from the D-Notice committee or something this morning. Who knows? But uh, just an update here. Uh, and this, this is interesting considering the comments that we'll hear from the British prime minister in a minute, Mike. But look at this. Uh, Ukraine ready to discuss neutrality, says Zelensky. So standing firm with uh, NATO standing firm and they're brave and they're fighting and pushing back those Russians. But look at this. Zelensky's tune has changed very rapidly. 
uh, in the last two days. He's now ready to discuss not being a part of NATO. Now, obviously, you want to ink that on paper. And then even then, do you think R Moscow will, will take that, take their word for it, even if it's written down, if a new president comes in? Probably not, right? But isn't it interesting how things have developed? It is, but of course, he has an option. Uh, he could uh, run and become a, a, a government in exile. And Britain has certainly said, well, we may be willing to host you if you were to prepare to do that. Oh, really? Yes. Well, that's interesting. So that's the, 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 what we tweeted out yesterday. Zelensky is the new Saakashvili. Yes. So it, yes. It, it, is Zelensky going to be the new Mikhail Saakashvili? This is the big question. So isn't that what Saakashvili became a carpetbagging uh, politician after getting booted out of Georgia? By the way, Petro Poroshenko is an ex-convict now as well. Yes. He's being pursued for uh, uh, various things. He's been convicted. That's one of our presidents that we installed. Uh, in there as well. It's not interesting. Yes, but of course, uh, this is all about, uh, this has all come about because of the pressure that uh, the West, in inverted commas, has put on Russia in order to protect Ukraine's burgeoning democracy. That's right. We need to defend this democracy and we need to make sacrifices. We need to pay more for fuel because because we're doing this for democracy, to defend this uh, this delicate, flowering, uh, uh, democratic experiment in Ukraine. Right? Isn't that what NATO's job is too? To that's certainly what we're told. To spread democracy. Yes. Well, let's look at the uh, democracy uh, in the Ukraine here. We're calling it a basket case uh, uh, democracy here. Let's just take a look at a little bit of history background here. That's Yatsenyuk and Poroshenko. They were installed by the United States uh, as prime minister and president, respectively, the interim government, after a bloody overthrow, violent overthrow of a democratically elected. Uh, present, which right. the West did not like uh, because he was of the wrong orientation. Sorry, just just correct me again. So there was a democratically elected government in place. The West didn't like that. So we supported the overthrow of that democratically elected uh, uh, government and put these two clients in instead. Yeah, we did that for democracy. Yes, we did that for democracy. And then this was followed by the comedian uh, who played president on television two years ago and decided to run for president as a joke. And lo and behold, Mike, he won by a landslide. That shows you the state of society and politics in this burgeoning democracy known as the Ukraine. Fantastic, but how bad was it? This is just scratching the surface. Let's take a look at a little bit of a timeline here. 2004, US, UK, EU, NATO backed a violent coup d'etat in Kiev. That's beyond debate, that's historical fact. However, you won't hear it on the BBC. They never mention it on the floor of the House of Commons. Everybody ignores this fact like it didn't exist. Yeah, but that was 2014. Ah, yes, it was 2014, yes. So that's when the coup happened uh, in the Maidan, the Maidan coup. Uh, so here we go, 2014, 2015, the Ukrainian military under Poro and co company, they ran an anti-terror blitzkrieg. They called it an anti-terror operation. They dubbed the whole of the Russian-speaking population in the East as terrorists. Okay, that happened. That really happened. So they, they ran a blitzkrieg and that prompted the Minsk Accord. So Minsk 1 and 2 in 2014-2015. That was the de facto peace process internationally recognized. But what happened after that? Well, Ukraine government stated its policy is not to ratify nor implement the Minsk Accords. They're very open about that. This wasn't a secret. But this was never mentioned. This is why the U.S. and U.K. officials would never open their mouth and say minxed hmm. in public. 
because this was their stated policy. This was known in the legislature in Ukraine. Everybody knew this. So obviously they're sandbagging, intentionally sandbagging the uh, UN uh, mandated, effectively mandated peace process. Right. So this is how we got to this point. It's really important to know how we got to this point this week uh, because you won't see any of this context or background ever mentioned by anyone in the media or in Western politics. All the experts, all the pundits, they're like buttons on, on this. So let's go back and say, uh, what else have we got to, to mention here? Well, this is important. The Kiev regime outlaws Russian language in certain areas uh, and legal, I believe nationwide actually, uh, legalized discrimination against ethnic Russians. What a burgeoning democracy this is. And by the way, if you look at the democracy index globally, Kiev is about 85th out of 160 or so. 60 or so. So they're, they're not very high on the league table. Let's just put it that way. Uh, here we go, 2014 to the present. Kiev regime outlaws certain Russian opposition parties. What else? They're arresting television station journalists, editors, taking TV off the air. This is normal bill of fare for Kiev, for this lovely democracy in Ukraine. So they're not doing very well in this kind of democracy game, Mike. This is what we're, uh, we're, we're beginning to realize uh, when we look back at the timeline. And so uh, again, 2015 to the present, Ukrainian forces shelling civilians in the Donbass, who they've deemed as being not full people in their own country, uh, not allowed to speak their own language. This is a population of 4 million, Mike. Yeah. So this 4 million people have been disappeared and canceled by the Western mainstream media by our, our well-informed politicians. It's as if these four million people have no rights, don't exist. They might as well have fallen off the edge of the, of the earth, okay? So this, that's how we've got to this point. They've been completely erased. To this day, they won't even mention that there's millions of people living in there who are being targeted militarily by uh, a country who we're arming. I mean, so do you see where Russia might have a few problems with the situation. So they felt that because Minsk collapsed, they had no choice. If Minsk wasn't going to guarantee the security of the people of the Donbass, they're saying that's genocide. So we need to step in and provide uh, military protection for the people of this region, restore their water, their electricity, their food, allow deliveries to come in, and basically do what Minsk was meant to do. For seven years, they could have implemented Minsk they intentionally did not. Mm. And uh, the US and the UK and, and the EU were uh, complicit in that because as soon as Minsk was implemented, the, the quid pro quo was sanctions are lifted by the EU. And we can't have sanctions lifted against Russia. That's right. So now Minsk is dead, a new raft of sanctions have been lopped on top. Isn't that interesting how this has played out? Again, you won't hear this analysis on the mainstream media you won't hear it on the floor of the House of Commons or by any of the so-called sure. experts. So here's the straw that broke the camel's back as far as Moscow is concerned. Back to the comedian. There he is, and he is he's talking about pursuing a nuclear weapons program for Ukraine. Now, that's pretty much the last straw as far as Moscow is concerned. They basically thought, this is not a serious politician here. This is our neighbor. So again, not the brightest bulb. In the box, uh, Vladimir Zelensky. So, you know, at that point, I think Moscow realized we're not dealing with, we can't negotiate. 
here. He's he's being armed by the West. He's talking about joining NATO, uh, and now he wants nukes. So I mean, so you, you honestly, it's it's hard, it's hard to not uh, understand where Moscow yeah. uh, uh, found a lot of problems with this situation over the last eight years. Okay, so I don't know how better to spell it out to people, but anyway, so. That's where we're at. Okay, well, so what is the UK's position on this then? Well, here we go. Uh, the UK stands with Ukraine. Uh, everybody must be impressed with this graphic that the UK government has pushed out this morning. The UK stands with Ukraine. Uh, and so they decided to put the Ukrainian flag uh, on top of number 10 Downing Street today. So I'm not quite sure whether that's the British government in there or not, because certainly the flag of Ukraine flying. Well, that might not even be flying over the Ukrainian capital by tomorrow. It could be a white flag, Mike. Well, indeed, <laughs> indeed. So so there we go. So uh, let's, uh, let's have a look, uh, first of all, at uh, how Boris introduced his statement to the House yesterday. Uh, and we'll just run through a couple of uh, the points that he made and, and have a little bit of analysis of what he was saying. I've just come from a meeting of G7 leaders joined by Secretary General Stoltenberg of NATO. And with permission, I'll update the House on our response to President Putin's onslaught against a free and sovereign European nation. Shortly after four o'clock this morning, I spoke to President Zelensky of Ukraine as the first missiles struck his beautiful and innocent country and its brave people, and I assured him of the unwavering support of the United Kingdom. Yeah. And I can tell the House that, that at this stage, Ukrainians are offering a fierce defence of their families and their country. And I know that every honourable member will share my admiration for their resolve. Earlier today, President Putin delivered another televised address and offered the absurd pretext that he sought the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine. In fact, he is hurling the might of his military machine against a free and peaceful neighbour in breach of his own explicit pledge and every principle of civilised behaviour between states, spurning the best efforts of this country and our allies to avoid bloodshed. For this, Putin will stand condemned in the eyes of the world and of history. He will never be able to cleanse the blood of Ukraine from his hands. And although the UK and our allies tried every avenue for diplomacy until the final hour, I'm driven to conclude that Putin was always determined to attack his neighbour, no matter what we did. Now we see him for what he is a blood-stained aggressor who believes in imperial conquest. A blood-stained aggressor who believes in imperial conquest. Uh, Patrick, uh, please explain to me where the Russian Empire is, right? Because, because I'm not seeing this expansionist uh, behavior from Russia as a general rule. We have plenty of expansionist behavior from the United Kingdom and the United States and NATO, mm. uh, you know, dare we say Libya or Iraq or, or Syria, Syria yeah. right? And a whole host of other regime change operations that that, uh, that have been run and in Ukraine, as you mentioned already in 2014. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, the, the, the West, Britain and the United States has an expansionist policy. So arming, training jihadist uh, terrorist fighters in Syria by the thousands 
uh, funding them, creating parallel civil, civil society structures, allowing them to take territory in Syria. Expanding the EU eastwards into Poland, expanding NATO eastwards into Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Not to mention Iraq. So Iraq. if we're talking, what, what consistently is happening with the, with the likes of Boris Johnson and other Western leaders is we constantly accuse other people of doing what we're doing ourselves. And then we tell when, when uh, well, anyway. It's called gaslighting. It, it and certainly is. So, you know, they're not, Ukraine is not an innocent country. Their military has been using our weapons to uh, shell civilians for seven years, okay? And cutting off their food, their water, and they're like, that's not innocent. And, uh, <laughs> you know, d diplomacy, we, we've been pursuing diplomacy to the final hour. The UK never once, never once even prodded Kiev to try to implement the Minsk Accords. They were just button-lipped on it, and the press were right there complicit with our politicians on that. Okay, let's have a look at the next uh, little segment here. Now, we have a clear mission. Diplomatically, politically, economically, and eventually, militarily, this hideous and barbarous venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. So eventually, so eventually, militarily. Now, that wasn't qualified in any way uh, in his uh, presentation yesterday. Uh, he was asked a question subsequently about well, what did he mean by militarily, and and of course he he fluffed his lines and said, well, uh, uh, and sort of said, well, we'll be continuing to to uh, uh, to send weapons uh, to Ukraine. Um, but of course, he didn't actually define what he meant by militarily at all. So that is still. Uh, unclear exactly what he means by that. Oh, I think it has something to do with the tripartite uh, uh, alliance, the new uh, secret. Uh, Indeed. Not covered by the press <laughs> tripartite alliance. So you can bet you better believe British special forces are in Poland right now and probably doing supply drops uh, every night. Yes. So, I mean, I would expect that that would be the case. Okay, so let's continue. We will, we will set up a new dedicated kleptocracy cell in the National Crime Agency to target sanctions evasion and corrupt Russian assets hidden in the UK. And that means oligarchs in London will have nowhere to hide. So a kleptocracy cell. I mean, I nearly fell off my chair when I heard him say that. So, so uh, here we have, we're living in effectively a kleptocracy, but of course, again, we're going to accuse other people of being what we are. It would be good if we had a department for UK politicians to, to police that rather than policing the Russians. Uh, so maybe they should open another branch, a domestic branch for domestic uh, political uh, uh, glad handing. No, look, the bottom line is this, Mike, the bottom line, Ukraine became a failed state when the West backed a violent coup in February of 2014 and allowed neo-Nazis to maraud through the streets and dominate some of the higher echelons of the military ranks. And then we flooded the place with weapons. Okay, that and there, so any state that's making ethnic groups that constitute a large portion of their population and ostracizing them, making their language illegal, then shelling their civilians, that's a failed state, okay? Those, that series of events means that you failed as a country and it's only a matter of time before you start coming apart at the seams or your neighbors are gonna tear you apart at the seams to protect the ethnic oblasts 
in that country. That's exactly what we have seen happen yes. over the last week. It doesn't take a genius or a rocket science or even someone with a PhD in international relations to work that out. Indeed, uh, but uh, you know, if he's going to uh, make sure that the kleptocrats aren't uh, able to uh, withdraw or evade sanctions, is he going to do anything about uh, the the money that he has received from the same kleptocrats in, for his own party uh, to fund his own conservative party in the last uh, number of years? Or maybe Joe and Hunter Biden. Boy, they cer they certainly managed to graft quite a lot of money out of Ukraine while Joe Biden was vice president of the United States. So we'll get more, we'll, more on that in a we'll, minute. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's see the next little bit. And we will work with our allies on the urgent need to protect other European countries that are not members of NATO and who could become targets of Putin's playbook of subversion and aggression. And we will resist any creeping temptation to accept what Putin is doing today as a fait accompli. So I thought that was really interesting. So now we're not only uh, protecting NATO countries, but we're protecting countries which are not members of NATO. And uh, well, who put us in this role? I think they're, in, they're making it up as they go along. They're, they're turning NATO into an elastic organization. They're stretching the remit. They're making it more arbitrary so that they can go and do whatever they want without having any international treaties agreement signed. You just basically work within the gray areas and you make those gray areas up with rhetoric uh, and reframing language as you go along. Yes. Simple. Okay, let's continue. Above all, the House will realize the hard and heavy truth that we now live in a continent where an expansionist power deploying one of the world's most formidable military machines is trying to redraw the map of Europe in blood and conquer an independent state by force of arms. And it's vital for the safety of every nation that Putin's squalid venture should ultimately fail and be seen to fail. So we're going to, this, this is sort of harking back to World War II kind of language again, the redrawing of the, the, the borders of Europe. And, and, you know, and so it's, it's all quite dangerous language in a sense. Yeah, no, Russia's not redrawing the borders of Europe, obviously, but certainly the EU is doing a pretty darn good job of that themselves by erasing the borders uh, of Europe. But he's, it, the, the thing is, Mike, it is a fait accompli. Zelensky has now capitulated this morning about joining NATO. So, you know, surrender is, is probably going to happen. Surrender terms will be sort of drafted maybe uh, on mo by Monday, by sometime next week. It's all happening very rapidly. So my question there is, has he actually capitulated or has he sort of gone in that direction? And then later on, there'll be, he'll be talked to by somebody else and he'll will he come back in the other direction? Later, later on, the Ukrainian military is already hobbled for the next five years. Right. Okay, 11 airports, all ammunitions, depots, facilities, tanks, airplanes, uh, radar capability, anti-aircraft batteries, all wiped out in the first 48 hours. So they'll, it's gonna take them years to, to, to get back to a point where they're a functioning military. And even then, they're gonna have Russia breathing down their neck if they're trying to flirt with NATO again. So obviously the people of Ukraine, uh, they're gonna be looking for a scapegoat pretty soon, Mike. And then the infighting begins. And then that means Zelensky's out and somebody else comes in. Who comes in? The radicals, 
could be a far right uh, right sector, right. Uh, nationalist, uh, Swoboda, those types. I'm sure the West would like to work with those guys because that they worked with them before. That's Yatsin Yuk and that whole crowd behind him back in 2014. So it'll just go from bad to worse. The more the West meddles in Ukraine, it's going to go from bad to worse for the Ukrainians. Right. Okay? And it's not going to hurt us. We're sitting here from a distance. People in America are beating the war drums. Oh, we need to do this to Putin. Cut off European gas and oil. We need to teach Putin a lesson by basically squeezing the Europeans in their energy bills. Yeah. I mean, it's just insane the things that people are saying in the Western media on this. Everybody is completely clueless as to what the real facts on the ground are. Okay, let's have a look at the last little segment here. And to our Ukrainian friends, in this moment of agony, I say that we are with you and we are on your side. Your right to choose your own destiny is a right that the United Kingdom and our allies will always defend. So, so Ukraine has the right to choose its own destiny, but uh, Lugansk and uh, Donetsk don't. That's a good point, Mike. I guess the people in the Donbass don't have a right to choose their own destiny. What about the people in Crimea? They had a referendum. When was that? 2014? What was the result of that? Uh, I think that was 98% in favor of uh, separation from Ukraine and moving towards Russia. Yeah, 96%. Yeah, it's a big difference there. Yeah. So, look, the, so, so that's all self-determination, all this stuff, all this talk. It doesn't apply to anybody that wants to be self-determined if they're allied with your enemy. Yes. That, that's basically what... Boris Johnson is saying there, double standards once again. And by the way, uh, the people in Donetsk and Lugansk are completely in abeyance with, abeyance with the UN Charter for uh, self-determination. Right. So they, they defended their territory, for starters. They were being militarily uh, shelled and targeted. They were being persecuted. They were being embargoed. And they drew borders and they uh, organized a government. So they ticked all of the boxes and they're recognized by uh, one of their main neighbors. So they're already qualifying for nationhood, okay? So all this talk that Russia uh, recognizing them two days ago, that was Russia's in violation of international law. And then the West are stupid. They put sanctions on Russia just for recognizing these two per, uh, republics. That's not against international law to recognize somebody. That's a political decision. The biggest mistake, they put sanctions on them, and guess what? When you punish someone with sanctions, this is sanctions 101 theory, by the way, you don't punish them before they do something. Right. Otherwise, they're going to say, well, I might as well go ahead and do it. That's why the military operation was launched yesterday morning. So, you know, you geniuses in Washington and London and the rest, you can only pat yourself on the back for this one because you did a sterling job. Right. So Patrick said a minute ago, of course, it's not going to hurt us. So let's look and see how it's not going to hurt us, because Boris yesterday announced more sanctions against Russia. Uh, so let's put this up on screen. This is uh, Britain's domestic uh, resilience. Uh, and this is the update in Ukraine. So you've got a nice blue and uh, yellow flash up in the top right hand corner there. So the UK, according to the British government, has a strong position to withstand the global fallout from Russia's reckless actions. Uh, we have a highly diverse sources of uh, gas supply. The UK is in no way dependent on Russian gas. So Boris yesterday in this uh, presentation saying 3% uh, of British uh, gas comes from uh, Russian sources. Um, so we don't have to worry about that. The Europeans, on the other hand, well, they might have another problem, but we don't have to worry about it. We've got a highly resilient food supply chain. 
I don't think so. But anyway, that's what they claim. Uh, our food import dependency from Eastern Europe is very low. And, uh, but don't worry that you might be uh, coming under cyber attack because the National Cybersecurity Center is there to support businesses and organizations to bolster their online defenses in case Russia launches uh, a cyber attack against anybody in the West. Oh, yes. uh, is that likely? I don't think so. Mm. So let's uh, have a look at a little bit more. Furthermore, we'll also ban Aeroflot from the UK, Boris said yesterday. Is that a good idea? Uh, it was not a good idea because as a result, Russia has now closed its airspace to British Airlines. Uh, I wonder why that would have happened. Bravo. Bravo, Boris. That was another good move. Well done. And uh, what else were you saying? Uh, I know this house will have the greatest interest in the potential of cutting out Russia from SWIFT. Uh, and I can confirm, as I've always said, that nothing is off the table. Well, actually, it seems to be off the table because the Europeans will not agree to this at this point in time. Um, so SWIFT, of course, is the, uh, uh, the payment uh, clearing service, international payment clearing service. Uh, and uh, there have been calls for many years for Russia to be uh, chucked out of SWIFT so that they can't uh, clear uh, their... Uh, because they're Russian. Because they're Russian. Now, what's interesting is that, uh, you know, Boris was talking about all these massive sanctions and how Russia is going to be excluded from the international financial system and excluded from the city of London and so on. But in fact, Russia has prepared for this because uh, in last year, uh, their dollar reserves were slashed to 16% of the central banks, uh, the Russian central banks uh, pile of money uh, compared to 49% four years ago. And it's also... Uh, reduced holdings of U.S. Treasuries by 98% from their peak in, in 2010. So Russia uh, has seen the writing on the wall with respect to sanctions and has decided to, to deal with that to a certain degree. Yeah. So, you know, they're also uh, positioning themselves. Uh, but as I said, the EU holding back and blocking Russia from SWIFT, they don't want to, uh, to do this. Uh, France and Germany, I mean, obviously uh, Macron attempted uh, to... to avoid this whole conflict uh, over the last couple of weeks and Germany to some degree as well. And pe people don't realize the amount of business links and industry and trade between Germany and France. I mean, you go to Moscow, you see the French supermarkets, you've got the food industry, Germany, you've got Volkswagen, you've got Mercedes. So there's, there's a lot of cross uh, uh, trade uh, between Europe and Russia. So again, Britain doesn't care about that. The United States doesn't care about that. They'd rather see Europeans suffer for their foreign policy machinations and great game geopolitical ambitions uh, than to actually uh, you know, address the, the, the reality on the ground economically. Uh, now, of course, uh, over the last couple of days, uh, there have been some videos shown. And, and Ben Wallace uh, occupied one of these uh, video clips that, that he was doing the rounds over the last couple of days. British Defence Secretary? British Defence Secretary. And uh, so we'll watch the video clip. And then Patrick has a book that we're going to send uh, Ben because we feel that he needs to see that. But let's watch the video clip first. Whether you're based in Cyprus or you know, we do longer tours in Kenya or Oman, uh, or are busy, we're just making it a brigade at the moment up in Estonia. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a busy eye. And unfortunately, we've got some busy adversaries now. Gone full tonto. <laughs> and uh, you know, that, that is going to I've got a thousand people on standby. Yeah, yeah. I think we should send the Gurkhas. Yeah, I know. So the Scots Guards kicked, kicked the backside of Tsar Nicholas I in 1853 in Crimea. We can always. So they, they're going to, Ben Wallace saying we're going to kick, kick their 
backsides as we did because the Crimean War went very well for uh, Britain, didn't it? When was the Crimean War with Britain? When was it? 1853 or something like that? Right. Yeah, around the 1850s. Yes. A while ago, wasn't it? Well, it was Victorian times anyway, but uh, yeah, but so, you, you, have a, you have a book. Well, you know, like we, we support Liz Truss with, and gave her, you know, we share the geography, a basic geography with her because she was struggling with her basic uh, geography. As Foreign Secretary, obviously, we support their um, ed further education, adult education. So we, we decided um, that, uh, yeah, we seeing that Secretary Wallace is an enthusiast of that era. This is the, from the Harry Flashman series, uh, one of the great tomes by George MacDonald Fraser. This is Flashman, and uh, reading the back cover, this is quite apt. Uh, when Harry Flashman's adventures as a reluctant secret agent in Afghanistan led him to join Lord Cardigan's Hussars and play a part in the disastrous retreat from Kabul. It culminates in the rascal's finest and most dishonest turn. The disastrous retreat from Kabul. Some things never go out of, never go out of style, do they? Uh, the, the one I was looking for was the charge, you know, charge of the, the light brigade, brigade on the, as they called the peninsula, not Crimea, yeah. the peninsula. But um, so we think that uh, the Harry Flashman series would be very instructive. Ben. For Ben Wallace, especially with that uh, gung ho um, revanchist attitude. Okay, so let's uh, let's put Boris back on here because uh, he said the government will do everything possible to safeguard our own people from the repercussions uh, for the cost of living. Um, well, that's quite an interesting statement to make, and we'll hear a bit more from Ursula von der Leyen in a second, and also from uh, from President Biden. And strangely enough, the the narrative seems to be uh, very similar. But let's come back to Ben Wallace for a second. Uh, I will not trigger a European war, he said. Uh, but what I will do, this is this morning, by the way, he, but uh, what I will do is help Ukraine fight in every street with every piece of equipment we can get them. So we're going to continue to... So I won't trigger a European war, but I will pump weapons into a, a, a conflict zone, yes. To, 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 to exacerbate to the war? To wrap it up, yes, absolutely. Right. Yes. Okay. Isn't anyway. that a proxy war? Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, Putin is not rational, he said. He doesn't believe the Baltic states are really countries. We have to stand up to him. Right. Stand up to him by what? Pushing more weapons into the... That, how's that working out for the Ukraine, by the way, Mike? Uh, I don't think it's going terribly well. Uh, yeah, so we, we're pumping weapons into the Ukraine, right? We're, we're, we're right behind them all the way for the last year, right? All the speeches, right. all that, and then what? Th how long did it take for their military to be completely hobbled? Less than 48 hours. Yeah. That's not going very well. No, no. Uh, so let's see what Ursula had to say. Ursula von der Leyen, who, of course, is the uh, president of the European Commission. Um, and, uh, well... She is very much on board with the sort of NATO uh, agenda, perhaps much more so than the, than the French or the German governments are. But anyway, let's see what Ursula had to say. Putin is trying to subjugate a friendly European country. And he's trying to redraw the maps of Europe by force. He must and he will fail. We will hold the Kremlin accountable. The package of massive and targeted sanctions European leaders approved tonight clearly demonstrates that. It will have maximum impact on the Russian economy and the political elite. First, this package includes financial sanctions that cut Russia's access to the most important capital markets. 
We are now targeting 70% of the Russian banking market, but also key state-owned companies, including the field of defense. And these sanctions will increase Russia's borrowing costs, raise inflation, and gradually erode Russia's industrial base. Our expert ban will hit the oil by making it impossible for Russia to upgrade its oil refi refineries, which gave actually Russia export revenues of 24 billion euros in 2019. Did you notice that Ursula was sporting one of those tactical German helmets yes. in that piece? But the, the key point there, it, what we saw there was uh, the rapid response mechanism in action. So redrawing the maps of Europe. Didn't Boris say that, strangely enough? We just heard that, didn't we? And, and there were other phrases in there that Boris said exactly. So this is, this is the narrative being built. But anyway, the, what about the Ukrainian army? Here's uh, what they were pushing out, the def uh, European defense, uh, sorry, Ukrainian defense ministry this morning, pushing this out this morning. Let's do a quite quick translation of that. Today, Ukraine needs everything. Uh, all procedures for joining the military are simplified. Carry only your passport and identification number. Uh, oh, there are no age restrictions. Oh, what about the whole child soldier farrago? Is that, uh, that's been waived? It seems to be. There right. are no age restrictions. I'm sure they would argue that that's in the uh, older the, bracket. The elderly. But, but okay. uh, it'd be very interesting to see. Um, now, let's have a look at... Uh, NATO then, because today there is an, extra an extraordinary virtual summit of NATO heads of state and government taking place. Uh, and as you can see there, there's a doorstep uh, of the NATO Secretary General was taking place at uh, 14.30. Well, that's uh, European time, by the way. Uh, that has already been cancelled. Uh, and uh, so that they've already had to change the, uh, the uh, sort of program for this. But why are they holding this meeting? It's because, Patrick, Article 4 has been uh, invoked. Article 4. Article 4. Now, Not to be confused with, with... Article 5. Ah. Right? So Article 4 uh, is all about uh, if somebody feels like they're under threat. So the Prime Minister of Latvia uh, has called for a consultation amongst NATO uh, member states uh, based on Article 4. Uh, so Article 4 urges NATO members uh, to convene when another member is concerned for their uh, inter uh, territorial integrity. So basically anybody can just say, look, I'm a bit scared of that bloke over there. Uh, would you mind holding a meeting and we can discuss it and then we can see whether we're going to take any kind of action. So so the Latvian Prime Minister uh, concerned about that and so that's why this this meeting is, is happening today. Um, but uh, what fascinated me, Patrick, was that uh, over the uh, mainstream press coverage of this, uh, and Twitter and so on was going hot, red hot with respect to Article 4. And I saw, well, we're going to show a, an article a little bit later on this, but, but lots of people asking why it was invoked and not really very many answers coming about. But let's, let's continue with the, the NATO stuff well, here. Where, where we're at right now, there's, there's Jan Stoltenberg, who will be soon running the Norwegian Central Bank. Yes. Funny how he's got the, all the excitement at the tail end of his, uh, his job there. Yeah. But uh, so, yes, uh, this outrage will not stand says Jan Stoltenberg. So NATO is going to, think Article 4, schedule a meeting. So NATO is uh, stronger than ever, and uh, they're, they're going to schedule a meeting. And that's what you were talking about before here, Mike. This is Deutsche Welt, uh, a German state-run media here. What's NATO's Article 5? Why are people talking about it? We're not quite sure. 
but you know when you kind of look in delve into the sort of the fine details of it um, and again this has to be arrived at un unanimously by all 30 member states so it's it's a kind of a uh, members that feel threatened so they go to the principal who in this case is Stoltenberg and he gets all the faculty together and they decide how they're going to deal with the uh, bully on, on the playground here so but here's the key here's the key article 5 article 4 does not however mean that there will be any direct pressure to act but beyond this let's look at the text the parties will consult together whenever in the opinion of any of them the territorial integrity political independence or security of any of the parties is threatened political independence that looks like that can be a little bit dicey and elastic that concept yes well indeed so let's just have a, a quick listen to uh, what Jens Stoltenberg uh, had to say uh, during the press conference a press conference yesterday I think this was uh, so let's have a listen to this this is the new normal for our security peace cannot be taken for granted freedom and democracy are contested by authoritarian regimes and strategic competition is on the rise we must respond with renewed resolve and even stronger unity north america and europe together in nato we are an alliance of 30 democracies standing as one we will protect our people and our values. Democracy will always prevail over autocracy. Freedom will always prevail over oppression. So he has said those words, democracy will always prevail over autocracy, uh, as we come out of two years of what? Well, not everybody's out of these two years in France. There's millions of people on the street in France because the president and the government said, you can't work, you can't buy food unless you take an experimental pharmaceutical product. Otherwise, we're going to discriminate against you. Same in Italy, also in Germany and other countries, Austria as well. And, so, and of course, we should mention Canada. So uh, is, is NATO going to act against Canada? I think they should intervene in Canada and take out Trudeau. He's a, he's a NATO member, so how's that going to work? With, he could invoke Article 5 if he gets attacked by another NATO member. Yes. Then what happens? It just becomes a big uh, barroom brawl at that point. Right. That would actually be quite fun to watch. Uh, let's not hope that it happens. So, but, so democracy is the buzzword. So where, where did NATO get off now policing democracy? I thought it was an alliance to protect uh, any members that got attacked by another country. I didn't realize they were, their, their job is to promote democracy. When did that happen? This is a very good question. It's not, about the it's same not time written down that, anywhere. No, indeed, but about the same time that, uh, that uh, NATO started talking about territorial integrity and borders, NATO considers itself to have NATO's borders. This is not a principle that's, uh, that's written into to, to NATO's charter at all. NATO's borders. Yes. So all sorts of problems here. This is what our forefathers called and, and, and historical uh, scholars called entangling alliances. Mm. This is what led to World War I. That didn't go too well. No. Okay, so is entangled alliances. NATO is the epitome of an entangled alliance. It's gone way, way, way beyond its remit, and now it's causing wars. It's causing proxy wars, 
in countries like Ukraine. Ukraine is a proxy war. It's Russia versus NATO. NATO is using Ukraine as a proxy. Yes. That's exactly, they're using our weapons. They've got our back, uh, we've got their back politically. And our training. A, a, our training, so it's a proxy war, just like the other proxy wars. It's just packaged a little bit differently. So in America, they're all up in arms about defending democracy. How dare Putin uh, trample on the uh, delicate flowering uh, fragile democracy of of Ukraine yeah. and Zelensky. Listen, listen to this uh, this highlight reel here from the U.S. The one thing that we all agreed upon: the attack on the Ukraine by the Russians is an attack on democracy. Putin is terrified by the prospect of a democracy at his border. And that's why defending democracy both at home and abroad must be an urgent national security priority. What is our democracy worth if we're not able and willing to stand against an invasion of another democracy? I don't even know what to say to that. So quite the democracy in the Ukraine, as, yeah. we, as we showed you in the previous um, segment here. So, you know, beyond this, um, on, on from this point of view here, so Pelosi basically lost it, okay, when she was in her press conference. And she basically, you can, the vitriol against, against Vladimir Putin in Russia, they yeah. don't know what to do because they can't really do anything but sort of levy some sanctions here and there yeah. and some rhetoric uh, from their pulpits and so forth. So here's Pelosi again, just, just you have to marvel at the venom here, but uh, go ahead and roll this. This is a very evil move on the part of Vladimir Putin. He's a KGB guy who happens to be probably the richest man in the world because of his exploitation of his own people that he doesn't want them to know about. This, my friends, is our moment. This is the Sudetenland. That's what people were saying there. The Sudetenland. The Sudetenland. So right. she's invoking Hitler in World War II. Yeah. She said Putin's the richest man in the world. I didn't know that. It's, he's not on any of the rich lists. But he is pretty wealthy. Is he wealthy? Yeah. How, how, how do we know that? Well, that's... that's by, the, by the investigative work of Luke Harding, I guess. Exactly. Who knows? But anyway, so she's totally lost it. There, everyone's screaming Hitler all over the place. So, I mean, this is just uh, par for the course uh, for the Democrats. Um, so where does that leave Joe? This is the big question. Uh, where does that leave Joe? Is uh, we bring Joe up on on screen here? Yeah. Oh, oh, another one. There we are. Joe Biden. So where's Joe in all this? This is the question. Well, Joe's taking the bull by the horns. I will have you know. And so basically, it's wake me when it's over. And so what's Joe going to do? Well, he's he's going to send a strong message to the Russians. How strong? Well, look at this. Joe Biden has ordered seven thousand more troops to Europe. He is not messing around. Where do you think he's sending those troops, Mike? Oh. Let's have a look here. He's Okay, an armored brigade of the combat team to, he's gonna show, he's gonna- It must be Poland at least. Well, not quite, Mike. It's not that far east. Uh, he's gonna be sending them to, to Germany. 7,000 more troops to Germany to rotate to fill in the other 7,000 that left over the summer yes. probably. Yes. So big strong statement here by Biden. And this is going to reassure our NATO allies. So just know that Biden is not messing around here. Good. He absolutely means he's going to stand toe to toe with Vladimir Putin. So okay, Putin should uh, should take note. So here's Biden. So Biden's thing now is, and Kamala Harris is saying we need to basically suck it up 
for democracy. We're going to suffer. We're going to pay more at the pump. Hyperinflation, goods and services, food, it's all going to go up. But you're doing it for the people of Ukraine. We've got a video here. Watch this. I know this is hard and that Americans are already hurting. I will do everything in my power to limit the pain the American people are feeling at the gas pump. This is critical to me. But this aggression cannot go unanswered. If it did, the consequences for America would be much worse. America stands up to bullies. We stand up for freedom. This is who we are. The president has already said Americans will be facing some economic fallout or some hardships. Can you explain to Americans what exactly will they face if, if this happens? Sure. As the president talked about in his speech, um, we are aware that, again, when America stands for her principles and all of the things that we hold dear, um, it requires sometimes for, for us to put ourselves out there in a way that maybe we will incur some cost. And in this situation, um, that may relate to energy costs, for example. That's a pretty good mask. Oh, so why is the vice president hiding behind a mask? Is the pandemic still on? I don't know. So basically they're saying you be prepared to pay. So everything they've done to deflate or to, sorry, to inflate the currency, yes. uh, to, to cause hyperinflation, all the COVID relief, all the dumping of billions of dollars and wasting it on test and trace, buying vaccines that all got dumped in a landfill or sent away to some African country that we don't care about. Okay, all of this stuff, furlough, and the list goes on, all the corporate welfare, all of that. And then jacking up the price of energy to pay for all these green policies. All of that has now been funneled into one very convenient scapegoat, and that is? Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin. So job done, guys. Everything, all sins are absolved, and now everything's on Putin. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so, so he, here's Katie Pavlich. Uh, she's a very good analyst. She actually exposed the Fast and Furious scandal, one of the first good authors to do that during right. the Obama administration. She's also a commentator on U.S. mainstream media. Listen to what she says here about the price of gas, but also about Joe Biden and corruption in Ukraine. Listen to this. So keep trying to make this argument that everything that, you know, with the energy situation, that they're doing everything that they can to mitigate the cost for Americans and the pain of the pump. It's just not true. If they wanted to mitigate the cost, they would turn the Keystone pipeline back on. They would hire back all the guys they fired on day one, and they would get 800,000 barrels of oil a day running through that pipeline instead of importing 500,000 barrels a day from Russia. The other thing I want to bring up here is the, the Ukraine-NATO situation. So for years, NATO or Ukraine has asked to be in NATO. They've said, we want to pay our fair share. We want to be part of the alliance. We want to have this Article 5 situation against Russia just in case they decide to invade like they are right now. Instead of, you know, Ukraine was always told, well, you guys have to fix your corruption issues first. Joe Biden told them you have to fix your corruption issues first. And instead of actually helping them fix the corruption issue, the Bidens and other politicians in Europe and the United States participated in it. They got rich off of it. And now Ukraine, civilians there, are going to die as a result of this chaotic situation where they were taking advantage of the lawlessness, the corruption in Ukraine, not fixing it. They let Ukraine hang out there so they could all get rich. And now they're screwed. They're surrounded. Really and so I think point. people need to remember that, you know, they've been asking to be part of the alliance. Yeah. They've been told, nope, 
while people like President Biden have gotten rich off of it, Hunter Biden got rich off of it, and now they're in a position where they're in countries. In okay, that's fact. That happened. Why isn't anybody talking about that? Joe Biden basically held a gun, proverbially, uh, to the Ukrainian government saying, if you don't fire the prosecutor that's investigating my son, mm. we're going to withdraw over $1 billion in financial aid to your government. And Joe admitted and boasted that he got the prosecutor fired. Mm. Hunter Biden was, was creaming in a million dollars a year for uh, a gas, to be, sit on the board of a gas company while his father was vice president in charge of the Ukraine portfolio. I mean, come on. Mm. Come on, man. Corruption. As Biden would say. So the question is, what has the effect on oil prices been? Well, here's Reuters, and they say oil prices surge as Russian invasion of Ukraine rings supply alarm bells. Um, so that was this morning, and but I was a bit confused about that because when we looked at the actual uh, Brent crude prices, well, let's uh, look at uh, UK oil first. Um, well, they're not really surging at the moment. So it doesn't that's, look like it's surging. It should no. be going the other direction, right? So, there, I mean, there was a surge uh, right at the very beginning of the day, but uh, it very quickly flattened off and was heading back down to the previous levels. Uh, and uh, if we look at U.S. oil, um, well, that was about the same. And what was interesting as well was that if we look at uh, whether people are taking long or short positions, so whether they're expecting the price to go up or go down, it's about a 50-50 split, so there's no particular uh, uh, agreement in the markets that, that, uh, that anything's going to be happening with respect to supply and, and demand and so on. Uh, but, and then if we look at natural gas, well, that's uh, obviously from March until, uh, March until the present, March last year, that is, until the present, so that's about a year's worth. Uh, well, obviously, there was that spike in September. Uh, the spike, the levels haven't really improved very much since September, but uh, nothing... Uh, massive going on there either. Um, and uh, so where, where does that take us? Well, uh, all of our politicians are saying we need to get off our dependency on Russian gas. Well, here's a, just an, uh, a cursory breakdown here. European Union, according to these estimates here, the statistic, 30% uh, uh, of its gas from Russia. This is via a, a couple of different pipelines that are feeding into Europe there. Biggest uh, chunk of that, of course, there is Germany at 60, uh, sorry, 40%. So Germany's getting 40% of its gas from Russia. Italy's getting 20. Uh, France is getting 18. Now, Poland's not on there, but Poland's interesting because they declare they're getting less, but actually they're getting more. Mm. Uh, so, and we don't have time to go into the details of that, but here's the, here's the pipeline. So look at this picture anyway, Mike. That's not easy to undo. Natural gas isn't something you can just put LNG bottles on a boat from America that yeah. you fracked and then ship it over to Europe and all of a sudden the supply is gonna be uninterrupted. That's just fantasy thinking. But yet fantasy thinking is what our politicians generally specialize. They're very good at fantasy thinking. And can I just mention before you move on to that, of course, Boris said that the UK is only receiving 3% of its gas supplies from, from Russia. But uh, the Netherlands there, what, what's, I want, I'm not sure what it's getting, but, but a significant uh, uh, amount of gas from, from Russia, but we're importing electricity from the Netherlands, which of course is mostly generated by gas these days. That's uh, right. The same with uh, with the French interconnect as well. There's going to be some gas involvement in that. So, so it's not quite as clear a picture as Boris is implying. The other thing he's not mentioning is that we're paying more for our gas because we cut our Russian supply. Right. So obviously if everybody knew how that game worked in the UK, they'd probably be opposing the, the policies of the government right. because it's hurting people in their wallets and at the end of the month.
For what? For what reason? What? For what? To prop up a, a puppet in Kiev? Some could say that's not a good argument, basically. <laughs> so, but here's what the pipelines look like. So they say they've canceled Nord Stream 2. They're, they're doing a victory lap right now in Washington and London saying, we, we killed Nord Stream 2. That's the joint venture there. You can see uh, from uh, Russia there by Finland and into directly into the port uh, in, I think, is Rostock or something like that in Germany. So that's Nord Stream. But they don't say Nord Stream 1 is operational. Then you've got the Yamal pipeline. That goes right through Poland. Poland takes off of that, by the way. That might not be counted in their gas. I'm not sure. Directly into Europe and then over to other parts of, uh, of, of the EU. So, and then you also have South Stream pipelines projects uh, from the Black Sea to Turkey uh, through Bulgaria and so forth. So there's a number of different routes there. So, and, and through the Ukraine. So the reason they're, they're pursuing Nord Stream, there's two reasons. One is the Ukrainian situation is unstable for Russia. So they obviously want to bypass that situation. And, and also Germany needs more energy. Why? because of Germany's green policies. Because natural gas is an important component of the green, the green policies of Germany. They've shut down their coal plants, they've shut down their nuclear plants, mm. they rely on natural gas to provide the baseload for their power, to heat their homes, et cetera. So they, you can't just switch it off. If they do, the Greens and the woke uh, brigade are gonna have to accept the fact that Coal's coming back. Yes. Coal's coming back, and so is nuclear. And I know Boris has gone a bit woke recently as well. So his dreams of a green utopia, um, that can't stand unless you have a stable and, and affordable supply of energy uh, into Europe and the UK. Yeah. And wind farms ain't going to cut it. And, and not solar farms aren't going to cut it either. So it's all great rhetoric at COP26. But the reality is our politicians are making us pay well over the odds for energy when we shouldn't be, and why? For, for geopolitical and political reasons. Yes, okay, so uh, at this point, I would normally say if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community, but I can't say that today uh, because uh, this afternoon we will be switching off the community website, the old community website, uh, and we'll be doing a fairly major upgrade to our community platform. Uh, so uh, you won't be able to join us over this weekend uh, and we'll give you more details of where to go uh, if you'd like to support us uh, on Monday. Uh, but if you do want to support us by sharing our material, of course, you can find us on uh, the various platforms here. Now, uh, I just want to mention this because Patrick has uh, gave a very good timeline at the beginning of the program about how we got into this situation. But I wanted to just remind everybody about uh, what Britain's position is with respect to uh, prosecuting wars and warfare and defense uh, in inverted commas. Um, and we're going to start off just by mentioning uh, this gentleman, Mark Cotton-Smith, because of course, uh, as uh, uh, great as he looks there, he stood up at Rusi uh, one day a couple of years ago, if you remember, Patrick, talking about the fact that we're Britain is effectively in perpetual war now, that the, that the ideas of war and peace uh, being binary states are uh, no longer applicable, that we're effectively uh, on a spectrum. Um, well, he is the uh, chief of the general staff at the moment, but in a few months' time, in June, he will no longer be chief of the general staff. It will be this gentleman, General Sir Patrick Sanders. Now, he's currently uh, Commander Strategic Command. Uh, and in March 2021, he was sa saying this, uh, Russia has combined military and non-military means to alter the map. So this rhetoric about redrawing the borders was already in place a year ago. 
uh, attempting to change the balance of power and undermining the cohesion of our societies through disinformation. Um, well, here he is, uh, a more recent picture of him, but uh, in fact, uh, possibly about the same time anyway, but this is him speaking uh, also with Rusi, uh, saying that uh, Strategic Command will transition the industrial age joint force to the information age's integrated force, and that he was launching the whole integrated operating concept, which is the basis of Britain's, in inverted commas, defence, but I would argue Britain's uh, war drive, because uh, as they said when he was launching this, uh, the integrated operating concept, uh, the central idea of it is offensive rather than defensive. So if Britain is talking about NATO being a defensive institution, if Britain is talking about itself as being a defensive nation, well, no, that changed when this became the central core of Britain's Ministry of Defence policy. So let's look and remind everybody in a little bit more of what this meant. The central idea of the integrated uh, operating concept is to drive the conditions and tempo of strategic activity rather than responding to the actions of others from a static home-based posture of contingent response. What does that mean? It means we're going to create this, this, the situations for strategic activity. What does that mean? What does strategic activity mean? War? Mean, uh, yeah, it means we're going to cause problems and yes. create situations that we can then react to. Exactly. Uh, it went on, they went on to say the old distinction between foreign and domestic defense is increasingly irrelevant. When fake news appears to originate uh, not abroad but at home, it gains credibility and reach, stoking confusion, disagreement, division, and doubt in our societies. Now, of course, uh, the, the key uh, pusher of fake news, according to the Ministry of Defense and the Foreign Office, is Russia. They have the Foreign Office has its anti disinformation uh, unit, which is there to counter Russian disinformation. But there's a, an acknowledgement within the integrated operating concept that that applies at home as well. So they're saying that the, the domestic population is the enemy. They are absolutely saying that. And, In and fact, they reinforce it with this. Home is no longer a secure strat sanctuary where we may choose to launch interventions unhindered, unhindered. Away is no longer a regional horizon, but a global one involving space and the electromagnetic spectrum. So the point here is, Patrick, as you say, uh, this idea of perpetual war doesn't mean perpetual war in other countries. It also means perpetual war at home. And so if anybody thinks that this situation in Ukraine doesn't apply to us here, well, it absolutely does, at least in the minds of the Ministry of Defense and the British military. So we've got to take that into account. And they always say that the talking point you see constantly, Mike, is that the fake news or misinformation sows doubt in our society and democracy. No, uh, the, the, the news that they're worried about is the ones that sows doubt in the credibility of government and the mainstream corporate media and state media apparatuses like the BBC. And guess what? The mainstream media and government are doing a perfectly good job of undermining their own credibility uh, by their, their words and deeds. And they have been for a long time. That's nothing new. These people are repackaging this to say that this is some kind of a endemic threat and we need to do something about this. So we need to deploy new assets and create a whole new class of uh, uh, defense. Uh, right, right. So uh, it went on to talk about the threat and that the threat had uh, evolved, uh, that adversaries don't recognize the rule of law. Well, adversaries. Yes. So was Russia recognizing the rule of international law when it uh, recognized the, the two independent uh, republics of the Donbass? 100%. Ask any international law scholar. I'm sure you'll find a few that have a different opinion depending on where their politics might lie. 
But in terms of the, the, the letter of the UN Charter, yes, 100%. Yes. Uh, so on it goes on. Pervasive information and new technologies have enabled new tools and techniques to undermine our cohesion. So they're implying that uh, they're being undermined in some way. And adversaries have studied the Western way of war and modernized their capabilities accordingly. But anyway, the key point here is with respect to the integrated operating concept that this is an offensive policy, not a defensive policy. And this is, in my opinion, Patrick, and you may have a different view, but this seems to me uh, that it, um, uh, it, it has come along in parallel with NATO declaring that it's got borders of its own. And, mm -hmm. and so there, there's been a shift in the uh, attitudes or the shift in the, 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 the outlook of Western democracies as to what defense actually means. So they're reframing the, the, the situation, they're reframing reality in order to give them more license to do more activity outside of the rule of law. Yes. Is that correct? It's probably, so, I mean, this is, it's gonna maintain a domestic sense of fear, uh, which we, we commented on, and right. that helps to pr propagate the military industrial machine and the new sort of cyber machine they're building. Um, but there's a lack of viable target nations at the moment, okay? So you need to create the, the perception that the military-industrial complex, the, the intelligence complex, that it's useful because the external enemies aren't really threatening you. Your biggest threat is, is your own mismanagement of your financial system uh, and your decrepit politics and your totally corrupt mainstream media. Those are the biggest threats to democracy right now uh, in the West. I think our viewers will probably agree with that. Uh, so, but the, they're unwilling to fight an actual enemy militarily. I mean, Ben Wallace was saying we're going to kick the, the 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 behinds or the backsides, backsides whatever, yeah. of the yeah. Russians. So, the, Russia has what thirty-two thousand uh, military personnel and administrative personnel, in total around thirty thousand in Crimea. Mm. So he's going to send the Gurkhas into Crimea. Yeah, and that's how that'll be half the British armed forces right. that you need to to. So I mean, they're just they're, it, Peter Ford on the broadcast yesterday on TNT said it's uh, um, infantile thinking. Yes, uh, infantile language that's being used by uh, ministers, former UK ambassador yeah. uh, to Syria, Peter Ford. I mean, I don't, I can't argue with that. So. No. Okay. Well, let, look. Let's end the uh, the segment on uh, Russia today and uh, Keir Starmer calling for the propaganda network TV channel to be banned in the UK. Which one are we talking about? Well, of course, RT. Now, you've put a couple of RT, RT articles on uh, today, Patrick, so uh, uh, that would be banned uh, because there would be no opportunity to put those uh, on screen. Well, if you banned RT, you'd basically be shutting off uh, a big source of information. I mean, if there's a war on and you, you're, you're banning RT, you're gonna be missing a lot of important information because, hey, uh, the Western media isn't totally biased in their reporting. I mean, this isn't anything anybody doesn't know. Well, we don't, we, we realize this. So if you take away a source of information, be it from Iran or be it from Russia, so that's not the, the problem isn't misinformation. I mean, this is a buzzword that politicians have uh, latched onto, that misinformation, disinformation, and ma the new one, malinformation, okay? So there's three of them. Right. So it's uh, MMD, MMD or something like that. They'll come up with a, a, an acronym for it. They, they can't define what the difference between any of these is. They're just using these tropes, okay? Stalin himself invented the term disinformation to rubbish his uh, political opponents. So ironic or not that our politicians are using Stalinist terms. But the, the point is they want one single narrative. 
They cannot handle having any other narrative out there that will compete with the narrative that they're trying to fashion, whether that's the rapid response narrative between yeah. Ursula, Boris, and Biden, or any other uh, version of any story, especially vis-a-vis -vis Russia, okay? That's what they're afraid of. This is the problem. It's not Russian propaganda, because let's be honest, uh, if you want to talk propaganda, I think the BBC is in a special league, a super league of its, own. League of its own, and so is CNN, NBC, MSNBC, New York Times, Washington Post, the Times of London, The Guardian, and the list goes on. Yes. Well, look, uh, you know, the question, we're just going to finish off with this. Uh, the question always is, when all this kind of stuff is going on, what else is going on at the same time? Because, of course, lots of things slip under the radar. But I just wanted to include this uh, topic. Uh, here is the HSJ. Now, this is the, uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the Health Service Journal, which, of course, is the news and insight service for all healthcare leaders working in or with the NHS, uh, as well as News and Insight, they that say of themselves, they provide expert commentary and analysis on the UK healthcare sector and are the only organization that covers all aspects of publicly funded healthcare from health policy to acute and primary care, specialist services to mental health and commissioning to provision. So that's really good. So they were holding their uh, HSJ Digital Transformation Summit uh, yesterday. And in fact, it uh, finishes today. Uh, and uh, well, who was speaking at it? But the wonderful Sajid Javid. So let's bring him on, bring him on screen. Uh, and uh, well, if anybody thought that the NHS app was going away or any of this stuff, get a load of this. Uh, he wants to accelerate the rollout of electronic patient records with a new approach that so we hit 90% coverage by the end of next year because digitization is the key. But here you go. To get there, we need to show people that the NHS app is for life, not just for COVID, uh, and that it will be the future a future front door for interacting with the NHS. So forget about ever speaking to a GP. Forget about any of that stuff. Uh, you will have to do everything from the NHS app. And of course, you know, the, the, your medical status, uh, whether you're able to go to get a job or take part in a, a public event or whatever, that will be sitting there quite happily uh, on the NHS app. Uh, NHS data is making the world safer and healthier thanks to the country's single national health service. The NHS is a precious source of in, in the form of data that can offer so much insight to pioneers in the life sciences, including some of the world's largest genomic data sets. Life sciences, do you know what that means? Well, this is the new industry, Patrick. No, life science is a euphemism for the pharmaceutical industry. One, this is what the pharma industry uh, refers to themselves as the life, the life sciences. sciences. Yes, it's completely ridiculous, and to say that with a straight face is pretty. It shows you what a corporate spokesperson uh, this particular minister is. Yes. So speaking of genomics, let's have a look at this uh, in science. Uh, Unified ge genealogy of modern and ancient genomes is the uh, title of the paper, uh, and uh, well, this is really spectacular because this is developed at the University of Oxford, uh, and it involves a new genealogical network. Let's have a look at the picture of it, the picture that they put in the uh, preview of this of this paper. Um, so they have apparently combined thousands of modern and ancient genomes from data sets. Uh, this has allowed them to construct the largest human genealogy uh, database to date. Uh, and so they've said, we've basically built a huge family tree, a genealogy for all of humanity that models as exactly as we can the history that generated all genetic variation that we find in humans today. 
this genealogy allows us to see how every person's genetic sequence relates to every other, along with all the points of the gen genome. Uh, while humans are the focus of this study, the method is valid for most living things from uh, orangutans to bacteria. It could be particularly beneficial in medical genetics in separating our true associations between, between genetic regions and diseases from spurious connections arising from our shared ancestral history. Uh, essentially, we're reconstructing the genomes of our ancestors and using them to form a vast network of relationships. Uh, we can then estimate when and where these ancestors lived. The power of our approach is that it makes very few assumptions about the underlying data and can also include both modern and ancient DNA samples. But this is all about the development of the life sciences industry and providing data sets for the life sciences industry. Uh, and I think that there are major dangers in this. But anyway, the, the point is that what they're describing of the life sciences industry, what Sajid Javid is talking about with respect to life sciences, is he's mainly talking about the genomics industry and where this whole thing is going. This is the growth industry that has just magic magicked itself right yeah. out of the uh, COVID-19 yeah. yeah. situation. Life sciences, biotech, big pharma. When you see life sciences, when they say that, it's biotech and big pharma. Just understand that point. Uh, and but yeah, this, this the genomic business, the genomic business is a massive gravy train. This is a giant, global, multi-billion-dollar canard of an industry, and it's being driven by things like PCR testing and all these different tests that they've come out. COVID was just the warm-up act, ladies and gentlemen. They've got tests for just about everything. They're dying to roll out and run through your NHS app or whatever app, okay. They'll even tell you if you're listening to your, uh, your, your headphones or looking at your screen too long or you haven't taken en enough steps uh, this week uh, to qualify for your social credit. It's just a dystopian nightmare, but this is exactly what they are planning down the pipeline. It is indeed. Okay, well, look, we've got to leave it uh, there for now. Thank you very much for joining us today, pa Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at 1 p.m. 1 as usual on Monday and for our members on the new community website and uh, new chat box. And we will see you then. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye.